All right, and good morning, Rich Point Church. How are you doing this morning? Good. We're glad to see you. First service actually responded with a great spontaneously. So let's try that again. How are you doing this morning, Rich Point Church? Awesome. Awesome, man. We're glad that you're here. Uh, listen, this conversation this morning is so important. There's so much to be said. I had no introduction plan. First service, we ran out of time quickly. So we're going to get right into this. We're having a discussion this morning on racial reconciliation. I learned these guys up here. It's like having four pastors up on stage because there's so much to be said. We ran out of time. So we're going to kind of continue the discussion. We'll, we'll share from the foundation, but we want to get into more of the discussion in the second service because I believe that this topic is the, for, for my lifetime, this is the most important time we've ever had that discussion. There's so much division. There's so much animosity. The scripture we've been looking at throughout this series is looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan, and there's some racial tension. There's uh, there's the Jews and the Gentiles who already don't like each other, and then because of some stuff that happened during the Babylonian captivity, there's there's a, an offshoot where the Jews and the Gentiles had some of them had intermarried within Samaria, and those people are known as the Samaritans, and, and they're even by the Jewish people they're regarded even lower than the Gentiles. And one time Jesus has this conversation with a Samaritan woman, and she's blown away, saying, "You're not even supposed to be talking to me." And the second time, the passage we've been looking at, the parable of the Good Samaritan, we have to realize this was rife with a geographic, cultural, but also some, some, some racial separation that was taking place. There was a lot of tension in that moment. And Jesus chooses to use someone of that Samaritan background to be the hero of, his, of this story, which would have gone against everything that Jesus' people would have thought of that day. And Jesus says, I want to use them as the hero of, this, of the story the, if you know the story, the, the person is, is, has been robbed and he's fallen. They don't know if he's alive or dead. The priest comes by and, and the Levite comes by and they should have taken care of him and they didn't. And then we pick up in verse 33. It says, the Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he, the Samaritan, is the one who has compassion. He went to him and bound him up his wounds, poured on him oil and wine, set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn to take care of him. And the next day he took out of his own money two denarii and gave him to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And so Jesus uses, chooses to use, as the hero of the story, the Samaritan who would have been, that their people would have been rife with this racial tension. And Jesus says, I want to confront that exactly where it is. And I think one of the things that we have to be passionate about as the church is, is to realize that at times we've, we've not had this discussion, at times we've been on the wrong side of this discussion. But it's important for us, if we truly want to follow Jesus, it's important for us simply to follow Jesus. Not to ask a subjective question in what would Jesus do, because it seems like when there's this political debate happening within our country, both sides would say, well, Jesus would side with me, and the other side would say, Jesus would side with me. And they do it by picking and choosing one or two verses. I pick my political opinion. I pick my social position. And now let me find one or two verses that back up what I say. And what we do is very subjective instead of objectively looking at it and saying, what did Jesus actually command about this? And I think if we just look at it from that perspective, the conversation changes. Jesus changes the conversation by saying, I'm going to go right in the middle of the turmoil and I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to lay this message that the world needs to hear to break down some of those racial barriers. So today we're having that discussion. I am privileged to have the men up here on stage. Uh, a couple of things as we lay the groundwork for where we're going with this. First of all, we're up here today as, as brothers. I've had a chance to get to know these guys that are up here. I've had a chance to have discussions. 
And for each one of us, we agree that our faith runs deeper than our skin color. And for us, that's really important. It's really powerful. Uh, there's, as we've had some of these discussions privately, we've discovered we have a whole lot more in common than we do have differences. And you're going to see that during the interview this morning. Um, and, and I think that's true of most of us in our world. That if we, if we look at our neighbor, they might not always look like us, talk like us, vote like us, or believe like us. But we're still commanded to love and that we're supposed to have a dialogue. And so the dialogue this morning, you're probably going to agree with a lot of it. There's some you might disagree with, and we're okay with that. Part of dialogue is that at times we have disagreements, uh, and it's okay for us to have those dialogues. It's, it's important for us to be quick to listen and slow to speak. So let me introduce you to our panel. First of all, all the way on my right, uh, maybe the busiest person in the city of Auburndale. He's the coach of the Auburndale High School basketball team. He runs the rec center. He, he mentors young people in his free time. I think he referees and does a bunch of other stuff. He also might be the most popular. I tried to add him as a friend on Facebook, and he had like 5,000 friends. He couldn't have any more friends. <laughs> But even as he came in this morning, so many people greeted him, love him. Everybody, please welcome Coach Eric Robinson. Also over on my right is a guy that I've known for quite a few years. Uh, he was a youth pastor. We shared youth ministry together for some time uh, before I think I grew up or something. I don't know what happened. I got old. Uh, but, but I got to know him as a youth pastor. I uh, got to hear his heart. We've had a chance to connect numerous times the last couple of years. He also works in insurance. He's a motivational speaker, the shift motivator himself. Everybody, please welcome Michael Mariner. And this guy that's, that's on my left, I've had the privilege of knowing Victor from the time he was a freshman in high school. I'll never forget, I was a youth pastor at that point. I went to Lake Region High School to be a part of their Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And we're there in the, in the afternoon, and Victor pops his head in real quick. And all I remember is, like, Victor walked in, and he says, hey, guys, I'm here, but I got to leave. I got to go to an SGA meeting. I'm going to try to make it back, but continue on. And then he, like, flew out. But I remember that day. Like, Victor walked in and had this bright, huge smile that lit up the room as much as his personality did. Uh, in a short time, he started becoming a leader in the FCA. He actually started coming to our youth group for a while there. Uh, eventually graduated from Polk State Collegiate, where for a brief minute, I had the privilege of being his mentor. He was so busy, it was hard to kind of connect with him. Uh, that's kind of how he lived his life. He had a rough childhood. I'll share a little bit about that. Uh, but he kind of got above all that. He rose above all that. Eventually graduated from collegiate with his AA, as well as his high school diploma. Went to USF St. Pete, where quickly he had yeah, to go Bulls. <laughs> uh, quickly he became Rocky the Bull, which he couldn't even share until graduation. He served on the, on the Senate there. And after graduating at 20 years of old, he ran for the state House of Representatives and amassed a whopping 38% of the vote as a 20-year-old student. Uh, so just an incredible young man, got his tremendous plans for him. Everybody please welcome Victor Sims. And it's been amazing. I thought a bunch of people know Coach E, but then to the, today the number of people who said, I knew Victor way back when. So it's awesome to have you guys. Again, thank you so much for sharing the stage with us as we share uh, what is a really, really important topic. Uh, Coach E, I want to begin with you because you and I were kind of the veterans up on stage here. That's not saying we're the, we're the old ones necessarily, but these guys <laughs> don't have quite the history. So I want you to share from your perspective, how have you seen the conversation about this change? You, having grown up in Polk County, particularly in Auburn, how have you seen that conversation change and what has been your experience? Um, I like to call it seasoned, not old, but seasoned. <laughs> well seasoned. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, being from Arbondale all my life, um, 
my mom, she kind of lived all over the place a little bit. And some of you guys, you might, you might look and you say, I recognize him. Either I might have coached you or I might have coached your kid. That's how old I am. So. <laughs> but my mom, she lived all over Polk County, and you know, we lived in, in uh, Hang City over in Lake Hamilton, and I went to Caldwell. Still, my granny, she lived on 3rd Street off of Bridges Avenue in Arbondale. Uh, we lived in the Bartow area, and I went to Stanball Middle School. I just wanted to be a bloodhound. I wanted to be in Arbondale. Um, so we've lived, you know, we lived close to Winter Haven High School, and I was still, you know, going to Arbondale High School. Um, so I am from Arbondale, born and raised. Uh, he mentioned insurance. I worked for a state farm for a little over 12 years, and I cringe every time I hear the word insurance. <laughs> Um, so now I, I supervise the Arbondale Community Center. I've been there for seven years now, and it has been an absolute blessing for me. It's actually in a neighborhood that I grew up in right across the street. I grew up in that neighborhood, and um, it's been awesome because, you know, we get kids of all shapes, all colors, and they come in that community center and enjoy each other with no problems, no hate. Um, it's just what I wish that everyone's lives could be built on. Um, I think this is an awesome time that I get to sit on this panel with these guys and talk about this, but at the same time, I think it's a shame that we're still talking about this. Um, and, you know, I, 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 I look out at my, my 16-year-old son. Christian, if you stand up for a minute, please. <laughs> That's my baby. Uh, Christian, yeah. is, Christian is 16. Um, he's a straight-A student. He goes to the collegiate. Uh, he's a junior over there at the collegiate at Polk. Um, but if you look at him, you can kind of see that he has the little funky little hair thing going on. Um, <laughs> but a lot of times, folks look at that hairstyle, and they think, some folks might think, otherwise but he's a he's a great kid but um, you know that that alone gets shined upon because his hair is different um, I think back you know it's, it's crazy because I think about today and some of the things that are going on in our society and I think back to when I was get, getting out of high school probably 19 20 years old and I'm riding with some friends of mine I, I'll, I'll go back and I'll talk about how um, kind of how I grew up. You know, my mom, it was six of us. My mom, she worked very hard. Um, my sisters and brothers will tell you that I am the spoiled brat of the family. I don't believe that's the <laughs> truth, but, um, you know, they are eight, nine, ten, and eleven years older than me. So they can call me spoiled, but I just say that I was the good kid because <laughs> I saw them do and make a whole lot of mistakes and get their butts tore up for it. And I said, I'm not going to make those mistakes. So, you know, at 16, I was able to, my mom and dad were able to get me a little car or whatever. And so they kind of, I, I guess I was kind of spoiled. But um, the older, you know, the older I got, I wanted a little, little bit better or whatever. So, you know, I'm about 19, 20 and um, had a little Volvo. I think it was like a, a, maybe a 92. I had like an 85 Volvo. Couldn't tell me I was not the man. And, you know, me and a couple buddies are riding. We're coming from the movies. It's probably around midnight, maybe. I'm taking a couple guys home, and, and um, 
one of my buddies, he lived in the Inwood area. And um, so we're riding out Havendale, and I notice a police officer in, in the mirror. So, you know, my but one of my, my buddies, he's crazy as all get out. He's looking, looking in the mirror, why, is he, why are they following us, you know? So I'm riding down, I'm steady looking in the mirror, and I turn on 34th Street, taking my buddy home, and I just say, well, maybe I'll, let me just turn a little early just to see if he's following us. So I take a right, still in the vicinity of my buddy's home where he lived, and when I take that right, the police officer pulls in behind me, and he turns his lights on. So now I'm scared. I haven't done, it, I haven't done anything wrong, but I'm, I'm scared. And um, he pulls me over, and my buddy, he's all looking back and stuff. And I'm like, man, just chill out. Like, just be cool. <laughs> we haven't done anything, you know. So uh, he pulls up, and I roll down my window, and he says, uh, can I see your license and registration? So I, I give them to him. But at the same time, I'm asking him, like, you know, what, what did I do wrong? He's like, well, I just, uh, we've had... 21 cars stolen in this neighborhood in the past three weeks. Okay. <laughs> what does that have to do with me? Well, I just, you know, just see you're driving this car and just want to make sure everything checks out okay. Okay. Um, I know you guys have never been black and I've been black all my life. <laughs> So instantly, I, you know, in my mind, I go to that. Like, this man is only pulling me over because I'm black and I'm taking a guy home who lives in the neighborhood. And so he checks my ID. Everything checks out okay. And uh, you guys have a nice day. Um, you know, so I, I mentioned my son. You know, he's, he's um, we live in a neighborhood. I hate to call it a white neighborhood because it's not a white neighborhood but I do live in a in a in a home where my neighbors on both sides of me they're white so my son he's he's uh walking outside to get the recycle bin you know like I say he's got that crazy hair stuff going on <laughs> I don't totally agree with it but he's a good kid so whatever you know <laughs> and um he walks out to the sidewalk to get the recycle bin and he's got he puts his hair in things he kind of looks like Mickey Mouse <laughs> um, and on his way out to the curb a police officer drives by and as he's driving by my son puts he just I'm not home at the time he puts his hand on his head and so he's the police officer drives by and then he stops broad open daylight he stops turns around my son's walking back towards the door and um he turns around and he stops his car, gets out of his car, and asks my son, you know, is everything okay? You know, polite, sweet young man. He says, uh, yes, sir, just getting a recycle bin. Okay, I mean, I was just checking. You put your hands on your head. I guess that's, that's against the law these <laughs> days to put your hands on your head, you know. But um, took him a couple days, took my son a couple days before he told me that. And, 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 and it just, because of how things are in our society these days, for young black 
males. Um, I was furious. And I, I went down to the police station in Lake Alfred and I asked to speak with the police chief. And we spoke and I just kind of gave him my rundown on, you know, what happened. And he did tell me, he said, well, you know, uh, coach, we, we, uh, we like to be personable. You know, we like to get out and talk to folks when we see them, you know. So that was not out of the ordinary. Um, he said, but, you know, I'm not real sure of why, you know, he would stop your son, you know. And the only thing I can think of is, I mean, it's broad open daylight. Actually, I can't think of any reason why um, besides the fact that my son is black, maybe walking towards a house that looks kind of nice, I guess. I mean, I don't know what he would be doing in broad open daylight. Um, but it's just, it's just, it's things like that that, um, it's not understanding of why things like that happen because, because I'm black, you know. Um, I have coached many folks, as JJ talked about, you know, I have 5,000 Facebook friends, <laughs> um, and I know a ton of folks, black, white, and I love everybody, always have. I know a lot of folks, some folks out in the audience that um, I've known for, for many years. And I don't love people because of their skin color. I love people because of what's in their hearts. Mm. And um, so sometimes it's just, it's hard because I want what's best for my kid. You know, I was, I think it's awesome what Victor's doing and his take on politics because I've never been that guy. I've never been into politics um, just never have. But back in 2008, when um, Obama took office, you know, my granny, my granny passed at 91. She was 88 at the time. And I called my granny when Obama took office and um, she boo-hoo cried on the phone. You know, she's, she was born in 1920. So you can, you can only imagine what she went through growing up. So I thought that it was absolutely awesome. And she told me on the phone, she said she just thought she would never see the day that a black man would be president of the United States. Now, I looked at it, I looked at it differently because I do deal with, with kids. And I, I mentor kids, been mentoring kids at, Car at Caldwell and Central for the last few years. And, and I sit down with them and when I, I ask them, you know, what do you want to be? You know, and, and, you know, most kids... I want to be a football player. I want to play in the NBA. I want to play, you know, Major League Baseball. Um, and I think that's cool, but I, I really thought that it was awesome when Obama took office because as a black man, it just kind of, I felt, I, I really felt like it broadened the horizon of young black men, kind of like Victor, to say I can be more than a professional athlete. I, I can be a a governor one day, or I can be a, a president one day. I just, I thought that was, that was cool that, um, you know, it kind of gave us that opportunity to want to do and be more. Um, but that's just kind of my take mm -hmm. on things. And yeah, absolutely. And, and just the power of that to think that, you know, what your grandmother went through to see all that she saw. Uh, I'm sure what that moment must have meant to her was, was so powerful. One of the things I was encouraged by, we had a chance to, the three of us sat down and, and talked over at the rec center uh, one day, and, and whereas most of the time what you're saying is it's mostly teenagers, we happen to be there on the morning that y'all had pickleball going on. 
there's not a lot of teenagers playing pickleball. <laughs> and so literally what I saw as they're playing pickleball, as we're kind of having lunch and everybody's kind of finishing up and walking by, is these, the, these older, predominantly white people that are walking by. And every one of them was coming up and making a face in the window or something to, to acknowledge Coach E as they're going by. And I thought about, man, even for them growing up, their culture, they couldn't have done that 30, 40 years ago. They wouldn't have done that. Uh, so it's incredible to see just kind of that love. Mike, I, I want to rotate a little bit, talk about this for a second, because if, if we're serious about following what Jesus said to follow, it, it seems crystal clear to me that, that the church should, should take this up, not just to say, man, we're not racist, but that we should be anti-racist. There's, there's a huge difference. It's one thing to say, well, I'm not racist. It's another thing to say, man, I want to fight some of these things that are out there, the tension that's out there. I want to be, if Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, then I want to be a peacemaker. There's a passage in Galatians chapter 3 where Paul's writing to the church, and he says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. We've, we've removed those, those barriers. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It seems crystal clear to me that this is something that we should be approaching. This isn't just a social issue. This is a gospel issue. This is something that Jesus laid out. Why do you think it is, though, that at times the church has been on the wrong side of this, and at times the church has been just relatively silent about it? Um, well, pretty much. I mean, you're, you're talking about a tight subject, and it definitely ruffles some feathers. Uh, and everybody's been raised a certain way, um, raised in... Um, different cultures and stuff like that. And um, so I just think people are just, you know, comfortable where they are. You know, one thing Christ did, he didn't come to make us comfortable. Mm. And um, he told us, he said, how people would know that you are my disciples is the love that you share for one another, the love that you have for one another. And um, one of the things that um, I really embraced once I looked at everything Martin Luther King did was the fascination that it wasn't just African-Americans that was coming against, that came to rally against the injustice, but even those um, of, 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 of the white descent that came with them, mm -hmm. which made the movement more powerful because, as stated before, you know, if, if we as a culture talk about the injustices that are going on in our community, our voices are only going to go so far because it's coming from us. But when we as a body can see that it is a total injustice, no matter what race, color, creed, nationality, or anything, that we come together, then we make that movement that much more powerful, whether it's coming from that side or this side. And the same thing goes, if you got an issue that you're dealing with and it's just your, your counterparts, then the, the movement is limited. Mm -hmm. But when both counterparts can come together in a world that needs love, in a world that needs a different direction, and Jesus Christ is the perfect um, the perfect example of how we should live, how we should act, and what, no matter what we believe. Mm. You know, that's why I said we don't want to get uncomfortable because, no, it's not right. You mm. know, it's one thing, like you said, when, and I actually, when you sent us the, the syllabus for everything, I was like, you know, sometimes you know a word, but it's like, I just want to look it up anyways. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, well, what's the difference between none and anti? <laughs> you know, and I thought, I was like, wow, yeah, that, that, that is because it shouldn't be like something that we tolerate. It shouldn't be something that we sweep up under the rug. No, Christ did not die for this. Mm -hmm. right. Christ said uh, that, that for whosoever believed on him should not perish. He gave his son for the, for the sins of the world, not for a certain race, not for a certain sex, not for a certain gender, but for the world. And if we're saying that we're going to be followers of Christ, you know, this is, 
This is why I'm following Jesus, because I wanted my life to be different. I wanted my kids' life to be different. I want to live um, a better life, not just in this life, but even in the afterlife. So if I'm going to model him, then why would I shun that very subject mm -hmm. and I'm supposed to model him when he broke the laws you know, of man mm -hmm. to show you that I didn't come to do away with the law as scriptures tells us, but I came that the law within me may be fulfilled. Absolutely. So now it's not a written thing, it's a heart thing. Yeah. And so we can't say that we can't look at the Old Testament and say that it has no relevance. Well, you can't realize what's going on in the New Testament if you don't understand where the foundation came from in the Old Testament. So we can't pick and choose. And um, I'll add this to it and say that it was coming to me mm. while he was talking. Is uh, even with the story of the young, the, the rich young ruler, talking about being uncomfortable. He said, "What do I have to do?" And he says, "Well, um, don't steal, don't kill, don't commit adultery. You know, don't do that natural stuff, big stuff." He's like, "Oh, I've you know obey your parents and and and." Uh, He's like, well, I've done that since my youth. Okay, well, you know, you're a man of great possessions. Sell everything that you have and follow me. Mm. Comfort. Killing the flesh. Picking up that cross and dying daily because you have the different issues that come up every day. So guess what? I have to kill my flesh every day. So since you've done that, okay, that's easy. Sell everything you got and follow me. Mm. Follow my pattern. Follow my plan. Follow how I live. But he couldn't do it. And so I think as a society, that's what we're doing. We don't want to be uncomfortable because I love my brother. When I met Pastor Jay, man, it was like, there's something different about that mm -hmm. dude, man. I just like, I, I say, like, man, I can get, I can get with it. I, I love that because I I'm, don't have a racial bone. And one thing I didn't, I, I grew up in Haines City all my life, you know, and not in such a good area, which I did not know till I got older. <laughs> 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 because, I mean, we wasn't rich, but... Um, Middle income family. Um, my dad was in the military, you know, 28 years, retired veteran. And um, for most of my life growing up, my mom didn't work. When my brother came along, kind of like the tail end, she kind of went back to work because she just wanted to. And um, so we stayed, you know, didn't know when I started going through, you know, heartache and pains of life, then she would share stories with me. I didn't know there were times we didn't have food in the refrigerator, you know, because we didn't see it. You know, and then when we started going off having all those shifts and rifts and she began to share those things, you know, and I'm like, you know, and then as I get older, I'm like, I didn't know we was in a bad neighborhood. What makes our neighborhood so bad? You know, it's like <laughs> I didn't know none of this stuff, you know. And so to see my how life transitions and how, you know, as in Coach E say, you know, we lived in the what we call, the, you know, the white neighborhood, had a nice house. Um, different things of that nature, but then God shifts my, and just shakes my whole world and sends me back to Hang City. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I was trying to get away from this place <laughs> for good reason, <laughs> you know. But at the same time, that is still to be uh, unfolded. The story is still unfolding. But at the same time, God sends me back to a place where I started. And so partially, I think that is to show my kids, my, my oldest daughter is 22, my youngest daughter is 16. Um, they've never seen that side of the tracks that I was raised up on. They was always raised in the neighborhood. And so, um, kind of funnily, Pastor John, and I didn't mm. share this with you, but I, I'm, I'm thinking kind of, because we tell them and we show them, but they never experienced it Amen. and lived it. And that's, that's a race within itself, interracial racism. Mm. You, you see, that's a whole other different story. Yeah. So they never experienced that side of the tracks that I've experienced. 
because I saw what I've experienced and I wanted to make a better life for them. But at the same time, still show them how you can go back and make a difference and tell people that this is not all what life has to offer. And that's, I believe, what Jesus did. He showed us that this is not what life has to offer. So as a community, we pulled together another church. Um, and I close out with this and I share this. Um, the Bible says that we are the light of the world. Um, that we are a city that cannot be hid up under a bushel. We are the light. The worst light that we can be as a church is emotion light. Because emotion light only comes on when something comes in its presence, whether it be a vehicle or a person. So you, you don't want to be good when you're around a certain person. You know, like Coach G said, he, you know, the, the content of the character, like Martin Luther King, Coach G said, with the heart, you know, he judged things by the heart. That's what we want to do. So we don't want to be that motion light, but we want to be the true light that Jesus has called us to be and not be afraid to handle tough issues that people don't want to talk about because it's going to ruffle some feathers. It's going to make you feel a little bit uncomfortable because Christ came to make us feel uncomfortable. Yeah. That's probably, you can tell he's a motivational speaker, man. I, I think each one of them, I had to hold them back. They wanted to get up and start preaching, going back and forth, <laughs> Coach, you mentioned that. Uh, Victor, let's, let's transition because you and I, Victor and I just happened to run into, into each other at Starbucks a couple months ago, and, and we started talking about some of these issues, just he had no idea the series was coming, but, but in that, you shared that maybe you didn't have the typical experience of the average person, your, your age, your race. So tell us a little bit about what you meant by that. Um, first, actually, I want to piggyback off of um, what Coach E said earlier, um, definitely about um, a lot of youth that look like me, um, what their goals are and what their goals um, at a younger age was, you know. And I remember, you know, when I was younger, um, probably until it was my 10th birthday, um, I was like, oh, I want to be a singer. I want to be a singer. That's all I want to be. Nothing else. I'm just going to be a singer. You know, um, November 4th and of 2008, that was my birthday. Um, that day, Barack Obama got elected. Now, like any other 10-year-old, um, you know, I'm expecting a birthday cake. You know, so I'm looking for this birthday cake. I'm looking, I'm like, man, they, they, they've hit this really good, you know. My grandma, my mom, my dad, everybody in the house is just looking at the TV, watching the votes come in. And I'm still, well, looking for the cake. <laughs> and so... They finally declared, you know, Barack Obama won. I said, okay, so when are we going to start celebrating my birthday? They all forgot it. <laughs> they remembered the election, but forgot my birthday. And that was the day I said, you know what, I, I want to be a part of that, you know, th that excitement. And that's, that's actually what got me into well, running for office. If it probably wasn't my birthday, I probably wouldn't have gotten excited. But that was the day that I said, you know what, that's the problem I want to solve in this world is to make sure that everybody has a chance to succeed. Um, but to go back into the conversation that we had in Starbucks that day, um, one of the things, I grew up in the state's foster care system. I was in foster care for 11 years of my life. I went home to home. I've lived in just about every city um, except for Polk City um, and Polk <laughs> County. <laughs> Don't know why nobody in Polk City <laughs> But just about every, every other city in Polk County I've had a little touch of. I've, I went to 13 different schools by the time I was in fourth grade. Um, so I, I dealt with a lot of those kind of different struggles. Um, and one of those struggles I dealt with was not understanding why my mother couldn't take care of me, why my father couldn't take care of me. And... Race was a part of that, but more than race was resources. Um, 
my biological father, unfortunately, he was part of the system. You know, one of my biggest fears is to have my kids be a part of the system because somewhere along the, along the line, we have to break that curse. Mm. You know, but as I started looking at that kind of stuff, I was like, you know, I just couldn't understand it. And, you know, all the way until I, I was probably like 17 or 18, it finally hit, you know, because one, I met my biological mother for the first time. and I got to see a different scope of what she was thinking. Um, and it, I was removed by no fault of my mother, um, I, will, I will say, um, but by the circumstances that she put herself into or the circumstances that her community um, had. You know, I currently work for the Department of Children and Families as a case manager um, for One Hope United. And a lot of my um, coworkers struggle to understand why people can't get this job, um, why people can't make this appointment, why people can't meet the needs of their children or do what it takes to get their children. Um, and I was blinded to it because once again, I lived in foster care. And when you live in foster care, you have to be able to provide um, the information that you can take care of a child without state assistance. So I lived in homes that, you know, probably was the only white per um, only, I'm not white, am I? I was probably the only. <laughs> Man, I, 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 I'll take the color and everything. I was probably the only black person. It's only skin deep, brother. It's okay. Yeah, it go is. ahead. Go I, ahead. I, I tell you, you know, we, we, we all bleed the same color. But I was the only black person <laughs> in one of the communities. And I tell you, like, I, 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 was, I, I lived a more privileged life. And, you know, in, in high school, middle school, I definitely dealt with that battle of, you know, you're not really black, you know, you're, you're too proper, you wear your pants up, you know, for an idea, you know. Mm. Um, and so I, I still couldn't understand it, and I got into this job. And as I, one of my teenagers, you know, we try to teach independence and stuff like that. And to be honest, guys, nobody... Nobody's independent. Mm. This is one of the words that I really hate. Um, we're all interdependent because we all depend on each other. You know, whether it's the person who's at McDonald's who we have to wait in line to make sure that they give us our food, or if it's the person that's coming to pick up our trash, or, you know, your son that picks up their second bin for you. You know, we all depend on somebody else. Um, and we expect our youth to be independent. Um, such a foreign idea to me, too. Um, but I was speaking to the youth, and I, I never really rode a city bus. And I'm telling them, hey, when you turn 18, I'm no longer your case manager. So you've got to be able to understand like, how to get to, your pro to the probation office without expecting me to drive you there. You know. And I said, here's some bus passes. I show them the application that it will have to do. You, know, you get 30 days, all this kind of great stuff. And he tells me, well, I know how to ride the bus. I just don't want to. You know, and I said, boy, if you don't ride this bus. <laughs> you know, one, because I've got 33 other kids. You are not the only one. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to ride the bus. I never rode a bus. Man, I tell you, I didn't ride the bus back. I Ubered my way back. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that is probably one of the most stressful things I've done in my life, you know, and I, I, earlier I told a, a story about um, when I was knocking doors and we were going to, um, when I was running for office in 2016, um, I got to one of the doors and, you know, I'm knocking like I did everybody else in the neighborhood, you know. I already knew, you know, what the demographics of that person is. You'd be surprised what politicians know about <laughs> you. Uh, know how you answered on this question, the polls, all that kind of great stuff. So I'm, I'm going to like, okay, 
don't talk about that, talk about this. And I'm preparing myself, I knock on the door. She starts yelling, get off my yard, get out my property. And she's like, if you don't, I'm going to shoot you. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> I said, I'm going to get off her property. You know, so I'm walking back in as I'm, you know, walking through the rest of the neighborhood. You know, I'm just thinking, man, what if I was a white guy? Would she have yelled at me like that? You know, get to the, um, one of the campaign events, and we're having a, um, a debate, and I get asked about the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, and I, I knew it was going to come up eventually, but I didn't think I'd be the only person at the debate to be asked that question. Mind you, I was the only black person at the debate. Um, and so I answered the question. I said, you know, I don't think, you know, a black person should be able to walk down the street and worry about if they're going to be getting shot because they're wearing it, they're having an Arizona sweet tea in one hand and a bag of Skittles in another. You know, but I do believe in being pro-responsible. You know, when African-Americans are being responsible, they shouldn't be shot up. When police officers are being responsible, we should respect them. You know, and it was, it was a message of harmony, you know, in a very divisive time. Like, you think it's divisive out there, like, come to politics. And it's even more divisive because the same person, you know, the person I ran against, Neil Cumbie, we don't agree with, like, almost anything. Um, and so, you know, but we went to lunch. We've had conversations. When he got reelected, we had a conversation on some bills that he needed to support, um, that I believe he needed to support. He supported the great ones too. Um, but you know, even though we disagreed, we were still able to have those conversations and talk about the barriers that people in our community that looked like me were facing. You know, the fear of when you see those red and blue lights in your rearview mirror. The fear of when you're going to a store that predominantly people that look like you don't go into and you're the one that feels like you're getting followed. You know, those are the that's the reality of being an African-American. You know, and it's even worse to be an African-American man. You know, one, because our expectation in our community isn't high. You know, it's, it's very sad because I remember in one of the debates I got asked, you know, you know, you're only 20 years old. You're running for this seat against a very polished guy. The guy's been in office longer than you've been alive. You know, do you really think you should be in the state house? You just got out of college. And my answer to that question was, you know, what's sad is that nobody can see me getting to the state house, but they can see me in a jail house. Mm -hmm. You know, and the fact that we've normalized that conversation you know, I don't think that people are just afraid of having these conversations. I think it's become normalized in our communities that we just don't speak about it. What do we say? Don't speak about religion. Don't speak about politics. Well, how do you share Jesus without talking about religion? Mm -hmm. And how do you influence change without talking about politics? You know, the two most important conversations are the things that we say don't talk about. Don't talk about it at work. Don't talk about it at the dinner table. Well, if we're not talking about it, then how can we... Can we really provide change. You know, 40 years ago, I would not have been allowed to sit on this stage with JJ. 40 years ago, I won't be able to eat at the same lunch table with JJ. 40 years ago, I couldn't have drunk out of the same water fountain. I couldn't have went to the same school. You know, and we're still facing some of those battles based off of economic status. Mm. You know, now it's not really on the skin tone or your skin color, 
but it's because of what resources do you have? You know, and that's where we can really provide changes when, when we're willing to have those conversations. I'm not asking you not to see the color of my skin. I'm asking you to understand what I've been through, what barriers I'll have to go through. It's harder for me to get a credit, um, to, get, to get a loan through a bank. It's harder for me to drive down the street without worrying about those red and blue lights. It's harder for me to go through college and graduate because you'll be the first generational student. You know, so when, when your life starts off with nothing, you've got to have help. And those help, that help sometimes has to come from those people that don't look like you, that will never walk in those same shoes. Now, that's why I think this conversation here is important because he's exactly right. I, I know one of the things I kept saying, you know, definitely whenever the Black Lives Matter movement was going on is, why aren't the churches having a real conversation about it? Because now I'm fearing for my life even more because when you're seeing what people are posting and they're saying, oh, you, they should have shot him more times. I'm like, what? Mm. You know, that's, that's where your heart goes out because we really do need to start talking about our relationship with Christ. We really do need to talk about more about our politics, whether we agree mm. or not. <clears throat> I mean, me and JJ are two different sides of the spectrum <laughs> politically. <laughs> You know, and we, we know it, you know, but we can still stop in Starbucks and talk for an hour and a half and let the people waiting for us just sit there by themselves. <laughs> Poor Hamid, he just, <laughs> Hamid was rolling his eyes at us. I mean, he wasn't Hamid, so talkative. Hamid I don't know why. Just, <laughs> Hamid started looking at his watch. JJ looks over and is like, okay, we're going to get going and we still talk for another 20 minutes. You know, you can't have a pastor say something's about to end. Never ends. <laughs> But, you know, the fact that you showed up is saying that you care enough about it because you knew what this conversation was going to be about. Yeah. And that's how we know who our allies are. We know who's going to help us help the future generation because, yes, I'm not old and I've got a lot of life to live. I hope if God lets me. But it's the fact that I still have enough, enough of those experiences that I that, that we can revert back. That's a fear of mine. You know, definitely in the current political climate when we're seeing people who are nationalists coming out and speaking out and saying their views on things. Yes, I fear for my life. But I can say that Polk County, we, we've gotten a lot better than what we were. Mm. You know, we've, we, we've tested those waters. We've had those conversations. Police departments have, have hosted those conversations here in our community. And when you see those things, definitely show up because, you know, you've got three life experiences that you've heard, but there's so many more life experiences from people who just won't make it. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think any of us on this stage have ever been arrested. You know, ask that question, ask these same questions to somebody that's been arrested. You know, ask the same question to somebody that's worried about how their lights are gonna get, gonna be on at night. Mm -hmm. You know, ask that question to a little seven-year-old. You know, like I said, I'm a case manager, and you're asking these questions, and when they recite these things and they're telling you you know, I'm excited to be in foster care because I know I can eat every day. You know, you, your heart goes out. You know, and that's where we, we really have to win as a church is to lead these conversations mm -hmm. and to, to change the narrative of what this looks like. Yeah, I think this kid has been here before. <laughs> How old are you again? I, I am now... He forgot what race he is and what age he is now. So. <laughs> 23. 
I yeah. just turned 23 <laughs> two weeks ago. I had to figure out which year I was in. I hear Victor talking about um, the, the differences, and, and that's, that's one of the, the, the tough things that I've kind of struggled with. I mean, now, now, don't get me wrong. I have always been good in the skin that I'm in. Like, I'm, I have no problems with that. I, I, I love being... I used to say a young black man. <laughs> um, Not as young as me, huh? <laughs> but I, I, I think I go back to to my son. You know, I, I, like I told you, he's 16, you know. And um, he turned 16 and instantly, because all of his friends have a car. Oh, yeah. Time to get you one. You know, Dad, every car he rides by, I don't know, Dad, I saw this. 1969 um, for only $300. It didn't matter. He just saw a car. He wanted it, right? So, you know, in, in the conversation that I had with my son when I got him a car, um, the conversation I had with him is totally different than probably the conversation that Al had with his son when he got him a car, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, I've never been white, so I, I don't know, <laughs> but... I'm, I'm pretty sure the conversation that Mr. Al had was probably a little bit different. You know, put you know, make sure you're driving the speed limit. Seatbelt on. You know, seatbelt on. Have a good time. Be safe. But because my son is black, you know, that that conversation's a a whole lot different. You know, I I want my I want my baby to come home to me. You know, so I, I have to make sure I tell him when you see those lights, you pull over. And you put your hands on the steering wheel. You roll your window down and you make sure you're very respectful. Now, this is just based off of things that I have seen and I have heard. Now, you know, make sure you're real respectful. You don't, you don't reach for anything unless you get permission. I mean, it's a shame that I have to have this conversation, but I do. I have to have this conversation with my son. You know, you don't get out of that car nope. and, and constantly make, make sure you're being respectful because I, I want you to come home. I know my son, okay? I, I know what he's capable of. I mean, he and I scare each other in the hallway, you know, hiding behind walls and stuff. So <laughs> I know how scary he is. I know how scary I am. But I know how scary he is as well. So um, I know if he got pulled over, how he would react. And for something to happen to him, it would just devastate me because I know he's not that type of kid. You know, and there's, there's, um, I come in contact with all types of kids. Just because, and just because a kid is so-called labeled as bad, that doesn't mean he deserves to die. Amen. You know, I mean, those are the, the kids that we want to help um, to change lives. I was telling Victor, er, you know, earlier we were talking, I was just telling him um, how proud, I don't even know this kid, but how proud I am of him because I've seen kids that have either gone through a system um, who have seen things, maybe their, their dad was an alcoholic or a drug addict, and they aren't able to get out of that. They, they aren't able, that, that's who they become because that's what they have seen all of their lives. That's what they have seen. You know, and my mom, she drilled in my head as a kid, 
drilled in my head. I mean, I feel like she's standing behind me right now, whispering <laughs> in my ear, don't you be like your daddy. Don't you be like your daddy. You know, my daddy liked to drink a little bit. He liked to gamble. I barely know how to play tonk. <laughs> <laughs> I probably still get my butt whooping Uno. <laughs> and I can't tell you the last time I had a drink. Now, and I, I know that's because my mom was constantly in my ear about what she, you know, and I could have, I could have, I could have went the other way and said, well, let me see what this drink is like and become a total alcoholic, you know, but it was just what, what she drilled in my head on what she did not want me to do or what she did not want me to come, become, and that's what, that's the, some of those same things that I constantly have conversations with my kids about, you know, because I want them to be successful, you know, but it's just we a lot of times we 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 talk kids into something and that's what they become. I hate that we're genuinely already out of time, but I, I want to real quick. And I don't know if you guys can limit this to 30 seconds. We've uh, struggled with that this morning. Uh, but but in, in, in 30 seconds, could you tell me in each of your opinion, what's the what's the greatest need right now in the African, African-American community? Um, now I'm talking to you about politics a little bit, so it's not 30 seconds. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 20 left. I was kidding. <laughs> I think one of the greatest needs that we're seeing in um, African-American communities is really mentors. Um, I, I believe a lot of young um, African-Americans, um, boys, girls, um, don't have those positive mentor relationships. I mean, we're looking at a lot of single-parent households um, with just mothers. Um, how much time is that mother spending when she's working three jobs? Um, and so I think definitely mentorship, you know, and it doesn't have to be a mentorship program um, for just African-Americans, but just our children all together. Um, there was a, okay, I'm sorry. It's not gonna be 30 seconds. Um, there, <laughs> there was a study, um, and I can't think of the, um, person who did the study, but they're trying to figure out what kind of therapy works best for children, all this kind of great stuff that experience trauma. Um, and what the study realized was that the people who lived the furthest away from where they had their sessions um, ended up doing better in society later on. Nobody could understand why, nobody could understand why, but it was because of the time that it, they took in the car having those conversations. As they're having those conversations, that person's mentoring them. And so it's those social connections and that social capital that that person builds. I'm done. All right. <laughs> Michael. <laughs> and I took I some would, of your time. <laughs> no, no, actually, no, because I would be remiss to even say we're probably going to probably all say the same thing <laughs> in mm. some way, form, or fact. Honestly, I obviously want to say fathering. Mm. Yeah. There's a lack of fathering um, in, in our neighborhoods, and that can be centered around mentoring mm -hmm. as well. Um, just, you know, how we conduct ourselves, how we how we act as young men, how we should treat um, our young ladies, um, how we should learn how to live, um, stop paying $200 for a pair of shoes and invest in, in, in a portfolio. Mm. Uh, you know, it, yeah. I can go on and that, this, you know, hit the heartbeat now. Mm. You know, I, 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 I go to organizations, churches and stuff like that, but my heartbeat is the kids. Mm. You know what I'm saying? And we're not teaching yeah. them nothing. Yeah. And, and even though some 
Then you got some parents that are not working two and three jobs, but they're still not teaching their kids nothing. You know, they're dropping their kids off the kids' church. Hey, you got them. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> <They're laughing. laughs> you know, laughing and, you know, and, and stuff. And this is what we face, you know. You know, life has, has forced us, and we've allowed life to force us to become busy. Yeah. And there's a difference between being busy and being productive. Wow. And, uh, you know, and, and I, I, I've shut this off. But I tell, I tell the kids, even our youth, man, I was like, listen, the church is declining. Mm. I said, y'all got to determine whether you want to chase the bag or you want to chase God. Wow. Because mm. everybody's chasing the bag, and the church is leave, leaving left with, the, with, with empty chairs because nobody want to pick up the mantle. Mm. You know, nobody wants to pick it up because everybody's chasing the bag. So there's yeah. a fathering spirit that needs to be returned to mm. communities. I'm not Michael come back here and preach on Sunday. Come on. <laughs> Coachy. Um, I asked JJ when he asked me about being on the panel, I asked him who was going to be on the panel. I am the type of person that I, 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 uh, I hate to be segregated. And I was hoping that it would be a few brothers, a few mm-hmm. white guys on the mm-hmm. panel. Because I feel like somewhere, somehow, we have to break the chain. Whatever that chain is, we have to break the chain. And it starts with us. It starts with us parents. We teach and instill things in our kids. And... They do, unless they break the chain, mm. they do the same exact thing. We instill racism in our kids. That's what we do. That's what adults do. Adults, I'm sorry. Not, uh, well, yes, we instill racism in our kids. And we have to somehow, some way, break that chain because if we don't, it's just going to continue on. It continues on. Um, and we have to tell our kids to love, love everybody. You know, when I, when I, mentor at Caldwell or Central or wherever I go to, which is close to my job, the first time I mentored uh, at Central, I had eight black kids. The first day I saw them, I had eight black kids. I got back to my desk, I emailed the principal, and I told her, I said, I know there are some white kids at that school that need me. I, I know they, <laughs> I know they need me. I know they need me. Or I know there's a Spanish kid that doesn't have or needs a man in his life to talk to him. I know that. My passion, I don't know if you know it or not, and some of you folks do, my passion is those babies and being able to help in some way, form, or fashion, some way be able to help them because I know they don't have. Like Mike said, I mean, it's all going back to the same thing. They need a father. Mm-hmm. I mean, I only have two. I don't mind having 200. I've, I've proven that over my, over my years of being here. And so that's what I feel. I feel someone has to break the chain. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as we've had this discussion, I've, I've just been thinking, you know, even leading up to this, just the, the need that's out there. And we're not going to solve it all in a 45-minute discussion on a Sunday morning. We know that. This is just for us beginning a conversation. Uh, but we would be naive if we think it's still not out there. What Victor said is true. Man, there's, there's a lot of it that is... Uh, cultural. There's a lot of it that's socioeconomic. I think that's maybe even more of a contributing factor than ever. But we've seen right within our county the last couple of months over in Lake and a couple of events that happened where there still is racial division. And so we have to enter into that discussion and, and have some of these conversations. As hard as they are sometimes, we have to be willing to say, I'm going to stand up and, and, and have that conversation. And, and if I hear something that's not okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to have that conversation with the person that says, hey, that, that just isn't appropriate. And I want to be part of the solution instead of either just saying, I'm, I'm, I'm not racist, I'm just going to let everything else go, 
I don't, I don't want to be that. I want to be the person who says, I'm, just, I'm not just non-racist. I'm, I'm anti-racist. I'm going to fight this. And when I can help, I want to help. So if you would, thank these guys for joining me one more time. And I want to do this as we close out. Michael's got a couple things to share at the end, but I'm going to ask Michael to come up and the rest of us. We're going to gather together and just pray for racial harmony within our, within our community and literally across the world. Uh, God, first and foremost, I want to thank you for the men represented on the stage. Uh, God, I know it wasn't easy to come up and, and to share their heart, to share their experiences, but God, you've been with them throughout this entire journey, so I thank you for them. I thank you for each one of their stories and the passion they have to be able to share that. God, we know that within our, our country, within our county right now, that there's still division, there's still disharmony. And so, God, I pray that today we haven't fixed everything, we don't, we don't have all the cures but, that God, we've opened up a conversation, at least in our, in our lives, that we can be the, the peacemakers this world needs. That God, Jesus calls us to live differently, to be different. Uh, and so allow us to be that. Allow us to, to have different conversations and, and to, to be engaged and, and, and not just standing by and observing what's taking place. God, we look at some of the, the ills that our country is facing right now. And, and, and sometimes politically, we don't know the answers to those. There's, there's a lot of controversial topics. There's a lot of things that we don't all agree upon. But God, as much as we might not always know how to, to handle things when it comes to, to government on, on the bigger picture, we do know that as, as believers, you call us personally to respond in, in a very Christ-like fashion. And so God, I pray for every one of us as we leave here, just united in this, in this idea that we want to live out the practices and the principles that Jesus taught. God, I pray that you begin through us to bring some sort of uh, racial harmony and, 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 and some contention, just, just our being content to that, God. God, I pray that uh, we leave here your ambassadors and want to make a difference in this world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.